0: Father, I praise you because everything that we just sang is true. It's true because you are risen from the dead, Lord Jesus. We say thank you. We praise you. We pray now that you would make your word clear, that you would apply your word to our hearts, that you would grow up a rich harvest, which only you can produce in us. Will you work now? Will you send your Spirit among us? Work in my words, work in our ears, work in our hearts, and show us your Son, O Father, I ask. Amen. What matters most in your life and mine is not what happens to you. It's not what happens to you, but what questions you ask of what happens to you. For instance, something bad happens to us, and for Christians, the common question is, what is God doing in this? What is God doing in this? And this is not a, a sinful, unlawful question, but if it were a gun, it would not be aiming at the center of the target, this question. In Luke, Jesus has happened to Israel. He has happened to the Pharisees, to the tax collectors, to the elites, to the prostitutes, to ordinary fishermen. He has happened He was born in a manger in Bethlehem. The shepherds saw him. The angels appeared. There was the healings, the exorcisms, the preaching and the teaching with authority. His baptism when the voice spoke from heaven, the swelling crowds, the raising of the widow's son from the dead, his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, his weeping over the future of the city, cleansing the temple. Jesus has happened to all kinds of people. So, Beginning of Luke 20, the authorities questioned him, by what authority do you do these things? They tried to trap him with a question about Caesar we saw a couple weeks ago, and then the Sadducees tried to um, show that he was just plain silly with a question last week. Now their questions are over. Jesus has a question for them, the question they should have been asking, the center of the target. It's not what you are doing but who are you? That's the question you should be asking me. Not what are you doing? Not by what authority do you do this? But who are you? The fundamental question we too are to ask in our lives is not what God is doing, but who is God right now? That's the question. That's the answer to the question that Job got. And that's the answer that God wants to give us. That's the question God wants us to ask. So to get at this question, Jesus will delve into what at first seems like a very um, esoteric Hebrew ancient theological question, but in fact, Jesus here is tapping into the main power line of God's whole work throughout all of history, throughout the whole Bible. Um, So first, we need to build a bridge back 2,000 years ago, even like 8,000 years ago, and then walk, once we've built that bridge and walked across it, then we'll need to walk back across that bridge to us today. So let's first look at the passage, and it says, but he said to them, probably to the Sadducees who questioned him last week, Jesus said to them, how can they say? And they are the Pharisees. The Pharisees, who remember last week, applauded Jesus and said, Thank you, Jesus, for owning the Sadducees. <laughs> that was fun to watch. How can they say, the Pharisees who applauded him, how can they say, what they're about to say, that the Christ would be David's son? The Pharisees had a, a more faithful view of the Bible than the Sadducees. They, they still took it too far and turned it into a wooden system of works. But they read their Bible. They read their Bible, and they believed what Scripture promises, that the Messiah, the Christ, which means the anointed one of God, would come from David, David's lion, he would be David's son. They believed this, it was obvious to them, and everyone knew this about the Pharisees, and by this time in Israel's history, it was a common belief that the Messiah would come, the Christ, and he would be an offspring of David from the tribe of Judah, where Jerusalem sat, the tribe of David. And this belief came from simply reading their Bibles from 2 Samuel 7. There, David comes to a resolve that he will build a house for God in verses 1 through 3. But God essentially replies, no, I'm good. I'm God, after all. (laughs) Have I ever needed a house to live in? Ever? I'm God. Uh, Because I built you a house, I, I don't ask for a quid pro quo. I... I'm a no-one's debtor. Um, I'm I'm working on a different covenant, a covenant of grace, a covenant of grace. So it it goes on in 2 Samuel 7. Let me turn there because it's worth reading. 2 Samuel 7. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up Your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. An offspring of David, his throne established forever. Forever. So, David again comes to resolve, but God says, No, I will resolve to build you a house, and your house, your dynasty, will last forever. And so based on this promise, David would then write a psalm, Psalm 110, the psalm that is quoted here. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, Psalm 110. And, um, it is a coronation psalm, a coronation psalm that David wrote for his son Solomon based on this promise. Um, it reads in the first uh, verse there, verse one, the Lord, and notice the lowercase capital letters there of Psalm 110, verse one. The Lord, which is how we put in English, the word Yahweh, the name of God. We we do that in English. Um, I think translators do that as a respect to Jewish people who would find it offensive to see the letters Yahweh written in, in writing. And so in English, we, we render it this way the Lord said to my Lord the Lord Yahweh said to my Lord so it's David writing this David writing this got a picture of this and the Lord God says to David's Lord who is David's Lord his son to come Solomon who will take his throne God saying to Solomon come sit at my right hand sit at my right hand until i make your enemies your footstool. So again, who is the second lord here? It's Solomon initially. Initially. However, later in this psalm and by the way, i say point out what i'm doing here, almost always in the new testament, i've said this before, whenever a new testament writer gives us a quote from the old testament, chances are they are quoting the one verse the way you would hum a few bars from a jingle you know, da-da-da-da-da, and you all say, I'm loving it, you know, the McDonald's, yeah. So there's, the, the one verse is not meant to be written woodenly out of its context, it's, it's picking up on the whole section of Scripture that it is in, in the Old Testament. So we, we keep reading in this Psalm, Psalm 110, and um, we read here, verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, okay, so David is still talking to his Lord, Solomon, you, the Lord has sworn it and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Who is Melchizedek? Okay, we need to talk about him. But, okay, let me stop here. Now, I, I, I realize preaching this, uh, there's a point, there's a funny, it's kind of a funny point, actually in Hebrews, at the end of Hebrews 5, where the writer to the Hebrews is talking about Melchizedek. It's this long section in the middle of the book of Hebrews, and he stops in the middle of it as if to say, now I can see some of your eyes glazing over (laughs) as I talk about all these Old Testament details. I can see some of you are like, what? Where are we going now? Um, And the writer there says, and you know what the problem is there? The problem is you've become dull of hearing. (laughs) Essentially, the writer to the Hebrews says, the reason why you're having trouble following me right now is because you binged watch Stranger Things four last night, <laughs> and you, and and your your brain is dulled and you can't comprehend what the the logic of God here. But but what's happening here is is crucial. Again, we're we're tapping into the main power line of the entire Bible of all salvation history. This is really important. Okay, so hang with me because there's a good payoff here. Back to Psalm one ten verse four. Um, Melchizedek, And this is, this is one of the most fascinating verses in the Bible. Who is Melchizedek? Okay? He shows up in Genesis 14. God, we'll see this later, God has just made a promise to Abraham, very similar to the promise he made to David, Genesis 12. Then Abraham needs to fight his enemies, and Abraham defeats his enemies. And then, out of nowhere, comes Melchizedek and Abraham pays a tithe to Melchizedek, and Melchizedek honors him. Melchizedek's name means king of righteousness. King of righteousness. And he comes down, in the text, from a city called Salem. He comes down, which probably means this was a precursor to the city that we now know as Jerusalem. And he comes down, he is the king of righteousness who comes down from the city that would become the city of David, And he brings with him bread and wine. Huh, isn't that something? Brings with him bread and wine, and he blesses Abraham on behalf of the Most High God, the creator of the earth. And the most amazing thing about Melchizedek is that he pops in, pops out, nothing else is ever said of him. Everybody else in Genesis has a genealogy. Everybody else, so-and-so begat so-and-so, and then he died all the way through except Melchizedek. Except Melchizedek. It's like, what? And then he's not mentioned again. He comes in, pops out, not mentioned again at all in the Old Testament until he shows up in Psalm 110, verse 4. Most amazing thing. That's what occurs to David, that my offspring will be like this, Melchizedek, a king of righteousness, a king of righteousness who is also a priest he will be both a king and a priest. And his, his reign as king and his priesthood will endure forever. That's, that's the image here that is portrayed in Genesis. He has no beginning and no end. It's as if his reign and his priesthood endure forever. Yep, exactly. That's exactly the point. Hmm. So David's offspring will be like this King Melchizedek. This King Melchizedek, after all, God had promised it. God had prefigured that the offspring of David would be like this king. He had prefigured it in advance in this man Melchizedek, this king of righteousness, priest of the Most High God. This offspring will be king and priest, and it will his reign and his priesthood will last forever. So now, back to Luke 20. Jesus asks the Sadducees, David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? Okay. And the answer is, so. what is Jesus doing here? Jesus is seeking to draw the Sadducees to come to grips with what, with who is standing right in front of them on the temple grounds in Jerusalem at this moment. He's drawing them to think about it, to connect the dots. the answer to his question is that David could see that one greater than him would come and he would be anointed by God. That's what the word Christ means. He would be the anointed one. He would be set apart to finally and fully reign over God's people as king, but also to serve on behalf of God and on behalf of the people as priest to the people in order to welcome the people, to give the people a path to God, a way to God. And not just Israel, but the nations, all of God's people among the nations. And because of the promise of God, it would be David's son. David's son would be that anointed one, that Christ who was to come. Thus, David's Lord, who would be king over all, who would be the greater David, would actually be David's son. Guess what, Sadducees? He's standing right in front of you right now, right now. David's Lord is David's son and David's Lord is standing before you right now. What do you say about that? What are you going to do with that? The sons of David that followed David all failed in some way, but here is Jesus in the genealogy beginning in Luke who descends from, directly from David. Here is Jesus anointed by God as baptism. Here is Jesus with authority over everything, healing the sick, casting out demons, raising the dead, feeding the thousands, bringing crowds to God. Here is the king with total authority, awesome Complete authority over all things, operating as a good shepherd to God's people, the way every king of Israel were meant to meant to rule. So the question you should be asking Sadducees and Pharisees is what does What does all that I do point out about me? You you ask, by what authority? What does it say about me that I do all of these things? Connect the dots. Your king of righteousness and your great high priest, your anointed one that's been promised to you that would lead you back to God, stands right in front of you. I, Jesus, am that king. I am the long-promised Christ, David's Lord. David's Lord. What are you going to do with that? Jesus essentially saying. What are you going to do with that? Okay, so who is Jesus? After all of that, Jesus is king. And Jesus is priest. Jesus is king, the great Davidic king. And he is the great high priest. And his reign and his priesthood are eternal. What does that mean? Well, let's look at this more closely. He is first king period. He is king. David envisions that this king that that would follow him, God will welcome him to God's right hand. Luke 20, verse 42, and to sit at God's right hand means God's hand of power is upon you. His favor is upon you. He will apply all of his awesome power as God for you against your enemies to such a degree that, verse 43, God makes Jesus' enemies, the king's enemies, whoever sits at his right hand, their enemies, their footstool. Their footstool. In ancient days, if if you conquered another army, you would have a big parade to celebrate and you would take the conquered army's general with you and when you mounted your chariot, you would literally have him bend down on his hands and knees and you would use his back as your footstool to get into the chariot or whatever you were riding on. That's what it's saying here. That's what it's saying. God will exercise such power on behalf of his anointed son that he will conquer every enemy, including the last one, 1 Corinthians 15, 26, death itself, death itself. And so Jesus would go to the cross and in the greatest irony of history, he would reign as king from a gory Roman gibbet. He would reign and he would be buried really dead and then three days later, he would be raised from the dead, defeating that last enemy. But even then, he would ascend to heaven and go to the right hand of the Father, Peter would say on the day of Pentecost, Acts 2, verse 33. He would go to the right hand of the Father. And so now, what we may conclude is that Jesus is not only the promised Messiah, he is the promised Christ, but right now, this moment, he reigns. He did not reign just from the cross. He got down from the cross and went to the right hand of the Father. Jesus is that promised King That promised Davidic king who would come to the right hand of the Father and who will reign. He reigns today. And he reigns over all things. Everything. Period. This verse that Jesus quotes from Psalm 110.1 has often been called God's favorite Bible verse. (laughs) God's favorite Bible verse. Because it is the most quoted verse from the Old Testament in the New Testament. Did you know that? By double the second verse. The second closest verse. The second one um, is from Deuteronomy 6.5, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's the second. What we do is the second most quoted verse from the Old Testament in the New Testament. The most quoted verse is not what we do, but who God is. Who God is. He is this promised king who sits at the right hand of the Father. Jesus is that, is that king, and he reigns. He reigns right now over all things. So, he is king even over death itself and he will bring to nothing every one of his enemies. He will, Psalm 110 verse 2, send forth his scepter and God will cause Jesus to rule in the midst of his enemies. Though at the same time, verse 3, he will gather his people together and they on the day of, of, of their coming they, they will give themselves freely to him. Which you saw on the day of Pentecost and which we see up until this day. This is Christianity to give ourselves freely to him. But in order to do that, he will bring his wrath on all who raise their head in opposition to him. He will, raise his, he, he will bring his wrath on all who raise their head in opposition to him. He will go to war. He will shatter kings, verse 5. He will execute justice on the nations, filling them with corpses, verse 6. Like the 300 men, if you remember this story from the Old Testament that God reserved for Gideon, who showed that they were real warriors by uh, lapping up water like a dog with their weapons at their side at the pool? God will do the same, verse 7. He will lift up his head quickly and he will defeat the enemies of God. Thus, it is no coincidence that in Revelation it is said to John, Revelation 5:5, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. Jesus is that conquering lion, the root of David and no wonder Revelation 19 depicts Jesus as riding on a war horse wearing a robe that is dipped in blood and carrying a sword. The law of God is written on everyone's hearts and this makes all of us when we when we rebel against the kingship of God, that makes us his enemies. who are God's enemies? God's enemies exist wherever there is rebellion against the rule of this God. And we all know that we are rebelling because his word is written on our hearts. So wherever there are lies, wherever there's strife and arguing between either people or nations, you can know that something deeper is going on, that we're enslaved to our own desires because we've made ourselves our own king. And when we make ourselves our own kings, it it takes many, many forms. It can take Any number of forms. It can look like sexual immorality. It can look like disobedience to parents. It can look like homosexuality, or it can look like looking at a woman with lust in your heart. It can be greedy abuse of the poor for political gain, or it can be overspending on your credit card. Wherever this form takes, this rebellion against God, making ourselves our own king, it makes us enemies of God, James says in James 4. The Bible calls that sin, whatever living as our own king whatever form that takes the bible calls that sin and it makes us enemies of god and god will bring all judgment on all his enemies he is our warrior king so nations people whoever hears my voice you should stand in fear i th- th- this is the part where the american church says to preachers come on preacher can't you preach something nice? (laughs) No, I can't. No, I can't if I'm beholden to this word and this word says that God will bring judgment on all of his enemies. He is a warrior king, so stand in fear, nations. What are you gonna do? You're gonna shoot missiles at him? The one who's been risen from the dead? What are you gonna do? Are you going to plan to get independence from him through science or through your your associations with the nations? you all going to get together? How did that work out for the Tower of Babel? What are you going to do? Because he reigns, he rules, he wins over every one of his enemies, nations and individuals. Do not think you are special. You might believe in American exceptionalism, but God does not. God does not. There is only one nation that is exceptional to him, and that is all by his grace, the nation that is ruled by his son, the king. Every other nation will one day bow their knee and bring gifts of honor to that nation. We are all natural-born enemies of God. That is where we stand, absent outside help. That is where we stand. That's the God's honest truth. But, but, Revelation also portrays Jesus as both a lion and a lamb. And a lamb, both the ruling, wrathful king and the sacrifice that is needed to pay for all of our rebellion. He is the king and he is priest. He is the one that we should fear and run from and he is the one that we should love and run to for refuge at the same time. He is the very one that we should submit our knee to in joy now. Everybody will bow their knee. Everybody will confess with their tongue that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's not a matter of whether, but when. When and how will that be? And he is one that we should bow our knees to now in joy and childlike happiness, because when he went to the cross, he fulfilled every sacrifice that had come before. He cut a new covenant in his blood. He cut a new covenant, a covenant of grace, no longer a covenant of law, where we are all condemned under that. This covenant that I I spoke of last week has always been promised, always been promised. It was promised to Eve. It was promised to Eve that one day God would send a seed of hers that would crush the head of the dragon. It was promised to Abraham, just after he met Melchizedek, that an offspring of his would come, and by that offspring, all the nations would be blessed, all the nations of the world. And it was promised to David, another offspring of his that would shepherd God's people. This covenant of grace has been promised all along. God's been working it out all along. And that offspring promised all along is Jesus, the head of this new race. Where Adam failed and brought death, Jesus succeeded, administering himself as the sacrifice needed. The sacrifice to not only cleanse us, but to give us new life, to be welcomed into a new race of people, a new nation, a new nation under God, his nation formed entirely by his glorious grace, a new nation that now lives within his indestructible life. Because of his indestructible life, as the writer to the Hebrews puts it, Hebrews 7, beginning in verse 15, this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, here we go again, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God consequently he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is your king right now with a rod, a scepter in his hand to rule the nations with and he is also your your great high priest, the great lamb of God making intercession for you before the father. He is both the one we fear and the one that we should run to and trust him and lay our Before. For his reign and his priesthood exists and endures forever. What does your life hold tomorrow? I have no idea. I have no idea. After the last two years, who knows? But I know that tomorrow your sins, if you've trusted in him, your sins are forgiven. And I know that tomorrow, every detail of your life, every square inch of the earth that you travel, every place that you go, every room that you walk in, Jesus will be Lord over everything in that moment. Everything. Forever. His priesthood will never end. His intercession for you before the Father will never end. funny, it's no coincidence that the nickname for Jerusalem in Isaiah, it's the word Ariel, and it's, a, it's an interesting play on words. The word Ariel in Hebrew can either mean lion of God or the hearthstone where the sacrifices were literally laid and then burned up as a sacrifice before God. No coincidence. Jesus is both. He's the Lion of God, and he is the sacrifice that was consumed for us in our place. (laughs) Jesus is both. He is king, and he is the one we should fear. He is priest, the one we should also love and run to and trust. Okay, so what do we do with this? What do we do with this information? Uh, Well, first, if it hasn't been already abundantly obvious, run to him. (laughs) Run to him. Be cleansed, be forgiven, be welcomed into this new race, this new nation, that is that is filled with resurrection life that will live forever. Gain entrance into this nation that will be the only nation that will go on into eternity. Receive this resurrection life that re- that that be- can begin now in your life. Run to him. Depend upon him by faith, and leave behind your old rebellious ways, whatever they look like, whatever that, whatever that is, whether it's the most awful evils or the most low-grade things that we barely even count sins. Leave it behind. Because as I prayed earlier, God is hard to satisfy, but he is easy to please. He is hard to satisfy, so he sent us his son, but he is easy to please. If a person comes to him and says, I believe, I, I throw my life upon you, I don't know much else, but I'm in. He's easy to please. (laughs) Salvation is by faith alone, in him alone. So run to him and give him your heart. Ask him to make your heart pliable because Jesus is is king, he is priest, and he is also prophet. By his words, we live. By every word that comes from the mouth of God, we live. So we need pliable hearts that that receive and, and can be molded and shaped By his word, by living under his word, by letting his word rule over your life, over your body, over your sexual decisions, over your wallet, over your financial decisions, over your mind, your mental decisions, everything. Because he is raised from the dead. He's raised from the dead, which means when we give everything over to him, guess what? We lose our lives, but then we get it back. He gives it back to us. He hands our lives back to us, transformed, renewed, resurrected. That's how God works. That's how it works with Jesus, and that's how it works with anyone who comes to him. He is king. He is king already in your life. That's the point. Do you see that? He's king already. I'm not making him king right now. He's your king. What are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? Everyone will submit to his reign. It's not a matter of whether, but which. Which time and how. Whether now or in the end. Whether by grace, by responding to his grace right now and kneeling before it or in judgment and kneeling underneath that wrath. That's the choice. Either way, he is king. He is king. So, run to him. That's number one. Number two, we submit to him... And then we proclaim him. We proclaim the thing that we submit to. We proclaim the thing that we submit to. This is why, this is why we care very much what's happening in the world. Why? Because Christ is king over all of it. Christ is king over all of it. Oh, you mean, yeah, yeah, that too. All of it. He is king now over all kings we don't make him king, we proclaim him as king to the nations. We proclaim him as king to the nations, which requires pointing out the rebellion in the world, not just in here, although we point it out to ourselves, but we also point out the rebellion in the world. And we say, you are not only rebelling against logic, against nature, you are rebelling against a king who reigns over you now and who will hold you accountable for this. We do not shrink back from doing that. Because whatever that thing is, whatever it is, before it was political, it was Christ's. And it's still Christ's. Whatever it is. That does not mean we're partisan. I'm not going to get up here and tell you who to vote for. But we care very much what happens in every realm of the world because every realm of the world right now is Christ's. All of it. This is why, for instance, we pray for the overturning of Roe v. Wade in church, because Christ is Lord. Christ is Lord. But, but, we do not just point out the rebellion. We think about both sides of who Jesus is. Yes, he is king, and we, we proclaim that whenever we can. We proclaim the bad news the bad news that you have been offending a king and you have no idea that what you will be called to account for, for instance, in the matter of abortion, for the, the, the blood of how many millions of innocents that pollute the soil of our land, you will be held accountable to that before this awesome, almighty king. And he's the one you run to. He's the one you run to. He is also your priest who has died in your place. We don't share one without the other. We follow up both with, we, we, we preach both of God's favorite verses. Yes, that Christ is king and you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. And, and in order to do that, we must preach that Christ is also the great high priest who has paid every, every judgment before God on our behalf. He has satisfied God fully if you would trust him. So we proclaim him, we proclaim him, we proclaim him. It, it was prayed earlier regarding Gov- Governor Newsom. We, we proclaim and we, we pray, run Governor Newsom to the one that will hold you accountable. Run, run to him who will hold you accountable for the blood spilled in your state that you have encouraged, that you have, that you have even used dollars and, and encouraged other people from other states to come and kill their babies here. God will hold you account for that. Shaken fear, Governor Newsom. And all that can be forgiven. Run to the same one who will hold you accountable. Run to the same one for whom I would have been held accountable for all of my bloodthirsty sins, all of my rebellion before God. Run to Him. Run to Him. Flee to Him before it's too late. Run to Him, and you will be forgiven instead of crushed. Crushed. Run, trust, and repent. Thus, we might speak to political things, but we are not political. We proclaim a king who is king over all of it. And we proclaim him as crucified and risen. Come, have life instead of being a purveyor of death, Governor Newsom, and whoever would follow you. Come, enjoy this life. Be changed, be transformed. Join me in this new resurrection nation. Come. So we proclaim him and lastly lastly and I, I apologize if I was a better preacher I'd have a good segue <laughs> a better segue here from number two to number three but lastly I, I exhort you Christian I exhort you do all that you can to rest to rest in his Sovereign reign and his sovereign, his his eternal priesthood in your life. Do all that you can to rest in this. Whatever you are facing right now, whatever you are facing tomorrow, we we have COVID long haulers in our church today. We have parents who are sending their sons off to serve in the military. We have people that are going to go through something very hard tomorrow and they have no, we have no idea what it will be. I invite you to bank your life and to rest your very life on these two facts of who Jesus is. That He is King and He reigns when your sun goes off, Jesus will reign over every atom, every, every, every atom of his body. Jesus will reign over that in every moment of every day. Forever. And whatever God is doing in this in this, this COVID long haul that you're experiencing, Jesus reigns over that. And he will reign. He is shepherding you. You are not alone. He is is supplying, He is protecting you, He is bringing you through this. Don't give up. Lean hard into the sovereign reign of your Lord. And along the way, along the way, when you sin, when you fall under the, the difficulties of life, rest in His priesthood. Rest in His priesthood. He is hard to satisfy and easy to please. He's been satisfied by Christ. You don't have to worry about that anymore. He's easy to please. Come to him, as Dan prayed earlier. Confess your sins to him and be renewed, be refreshed by that, by that uh, new dose of grace from the very throne of Jesus. He makes propitiation for you, he intercedes for you before the very throne of God forever. And he will never stop. His life is indestructible. You cannot sin your way out of his kingdom. Go to him, enjoy, rest in his reign, rest in his priesthood. So, one practical way that we can all do this, I've mentioned specific challenges, but one practical way is um, what we do today. What we do today on what we call the Lord's Day, Sunday. Sunday the Sabbath. We call this the Lord's Day. And the reason why we call this the Lord's Day, there's a very ancient reason. The reason is when the early Christians growing up as a church in Rome, um, there was someone called Caesar. And Caesar named uh, the first, at first it was the first day of the month, Caesar Day. Everyone was supposed to worship Caesar on that day. And then it turned into Thursday. The English word Thursday is a translation of uh, a, G- a German Thursday, which is the translation of the Latin for Jupiter's day. Um, thir- it became Thursday. So those early Christians would say, okay, all right. But Sunday, that's the Lord's day. <laughs> you can have me for six days of the week, but Sunday, that's the Lord's day. And I give that to him entirely. <laughs> I give that entirely to him. We're going to gather together. We are going to worship. We are going to proclaim his death and his resurrection until he comes. And, and in that sense, worship becomes warfare. Whenever we come together and we, we give this one day of the week over to God, again, Jesus said the Sabbath was not, um, man was not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was made for man. There's no wooden law to this. But when we give over one day of the week and we call that day the Lord's Day, we are fighting a great war. We are proclaiming to the nations, there is a Lord, there is a King, and He is the King that you should run to. And our weapons, our weapons of war are very humble, but they are the most powerful weapons, bread and wine and the water of washing and baptism. These are our weapons that we proclaim. We proclaim them every Sunday we proclaim them by the Spirit, by the Spirit, and and by the Spirit of God, the Spirit of this King, the nations throughout history and and into the future will continue to fall before these humble weapons. As we gather together and we proclaim the Lord's death until He comes, we, we enter into this King's mission, and He is still on this mission, to seek and to save the lost. And no power, No earthly power will get in his way in that mission. No earthly power will thwart him. So I say, set aside one day of the week to rest, give the day to the Lord and truly make it however you want to make it, not woodenly. Not to earn something before God, but to acknowledge that He is already King and He is your great High Priest who has died for you. Give Him one day of the week and make it the Lord's day. And by that simple act, that is a simple act of rebellion against the gods of this age. A simple act of worship, of declaring that there is a King, He is risen, and He reigns, and He reigns interceding for the nations before the Father. So who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? He is the king and he is the priest. He is the person that we should both fear and run from and he is the person that we should love and run to. And he is our hope. He is our life. He is the news we proclaim And he is the reward that is coming for us, as we sang earlier. He is our coming reward. He is the heaven of our heaven. He is the life of our life. He is the light of our life. He is our reward, and he's coming soon, Christian. So lean hard into his reign. Lean hard into his priesthood and rest in him. Rest in him. Let me pray for that now for all of us. Lord Jesus, You are King, and You are our great High Priest sacrificed for us. I pray for myself and I pray for my sisters and brothers that You would give each of us faith, I believe, but help my unbelief. Grant us faith that we might rest in the fact of Your sovereign reign as King over all things that we might rest in your priesthood for us, your sacrifice for us in our place. Grant us to rest by faith. Grant us to be filled with joy. Grant us courage and power to proclaim this news of your mighty reign and your eternal priesthood to the nations. Bring in the nations, we pray, through your Son. I pray this in your name. Amen. Receive the benediction from Romans 8, beginning in verse 31. It's for you, Christian. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, our King and our great High Priest, if God is so for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things, even the things that are hard, He will give them to you make them to be for you. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God for you, who is interceding For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God and Christ Jesus our Lord. Go resting in that today, you privileged people. Amen. (laughs)